You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. And this week we are continuing Herds. No crime in the mountains. No crime? There's been at least two. At least two. <laughs> Probably more. Probably a lot more, actually. I mean, <laughs> you could argue the case that there has been a lot of crime in a these mountains. A lot of crime. Um, but really it's more, you know, the kind of... If a tree falls in the forest and no yeah. one's there to hear it, Delio. Well, you know what? It's a good thing Evans is here to hear the crime. In fact, be a part of the crime. Dude gets assaulted. Dude is, like, nearly murdered several times. Oh, it's always good it's when your detective actually ends up in physical danger. Sometimes yeah. sometimes the armchair gets a bit dry. Yeah, some, <laughs> sometimes the armchair gets a bit dry. You know what? You're right. Sometimes we got to put the fear of the fear of death in our detectives. And that's certainly where Evans is uh, right now at the end of chapter nine mm. of No Crime in the Mountains, speeding away along the highway. Yes. But. Chapters five to nine today. Herds is the blind man. He that's has me. to solve this. Yeah. Before we get into the story, though, uh-huh. Herds, yeah. I have something that I've been uh, I've been doing well, on, on f- this book so far. I hope you've been doing something, Flex, to prepare for the show. You, what, what have you got for me right now? Okay. What are you doing? So, you surprised me with something. Have you heard I'm of scared. this thing called foreshadowing? Yes. So you know those rules by uh, Ronald Knox and S.S. Van Dyne that we always speak about, but particularly at length, I think, with this book. I'm vaguely familiar with them. I hear you can you can catch them on the, on the website and on the yes. podcast if you want to hear us speak more about them. But yeah, tell me. Tell me, Flex. So uh, I, I have to say that there are actually more rules that we need to talk about. More? And oh, Raymond already, Chandler wrote them. There's already too many rules. Why is he writing more rules? What is this? I've been I've been committing foreshadowing uh, to, to, you know, lay waste to, to your ears with all of these rules as we get Mm-mm. forwards to uh, Raymond Chandler's rules Mm-mm. for detective fiction. I don't like this. And I've got to say, Herds, I think you will like Raymond Chandler's rules. All right, all right. Th- do you have a list? Is How many do, are there? I Is do have a list. I do have a list, but I want you, first of all, to try have a guess at what those rules would be. You know, we have the Knox and what? Van Dyne rules. Some are about fair play. Some are about how to write a good novel. Where do you think Raymond Chandler lies? Uh... That is an excellent question. I mean, I feel like he's less focused on the puzzle. That's certainly something that I'm getting the vibe on. Look, I don't even know if I'm meant to figure out who killed who. I don't know if that's the thing. Less about the puzzle, more about, like, the story and, like, how much sense it makes. <laughs> I don't know. You, you're, you're getting there. You're, you're pretty all right. I will tell you before we get to this list, though, that the two related links at the bottom of this article on Thrilling Detective, which is a excellent source for detective fiction-y type stuff online... The two articles linked at the bottom are titled Lighten Up, Ray, and Raymond Chandler Was an Asshole. <laughs> wow. So there's some controversy around Raymond Chandler. We'll there? get to that. We'll oh, my that. goodness. We're going to live react have, to some controversy. I have so much. This might be I'm the ready. entire first segment. We'll see how I'm long okay with that. Here we go. Let's go down these 10 rules quickly. Just, right, let's just go through just, it. Just some highlights. The first, the novel must be credibly motivated. The methods of murder, this is the second rule, the methods mm-hmm. of murder must be technically sound. Okay. The third, sure. it must be realistic in character, setting, and atmosphere. Okay. Four, it must have a sound story value apart from the mystery element. Okay. Five, it apart must have from? enough essential simplicity to be explained easily when the time comes. Six, it must baffle a reasonably intelligent reader. Uh-huh. Seven, the solution must seem inevitable once revealed. Eight, it must not try to do everything at once. And nine, it must punish the criminal in one way or another, not necessarily by operation of the law. And finally, it must be honest with the reader. Okay. Um, f- 
these are fine, I suppose. They're definitely not as focused on fair play, which is exciting. It's very normally, different. normally we would do an episode, you know, aside from our main show on the podcast with these, but I don't really have much to say about these. They're these pretty kind straightforward. Of, it's pretty straightforward. Pretty, yeah. pretty good, you know, advice for just general storytelling in general. You know, it should have something to weigh it up behind the core element. I think that's just good writing advice. Mm. These all seem pretty reasonable, right? It's it's good advice. It goes over sure. some good details of the story. If a detective novel had all of, all of these, I would say it is probably a good story. It's pretty reasonable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, on the other hand, uh-huh. Raymond Chandler's On the Simple Art of Murder. What is this? Is this a novel that he's written about how terrible murder mystery is? It is It is an essay that he wrote on, uh, on murder mystery fiction and detective fiction. Mm-hmm. And... I <laughs> I wished I could resurrect the man to punch him in the face. What? Having read What it. has this man done? Can we I will I will go down the highlights, which admittedly also picked from uh the thrilling detective website because they okay. did a very good job That's of it. That's right. They're a good source of information. I like it. I like it. On on the classics in detective fiction, he says there are no classics of crime detection. Okay. Not one. Within its frame of reference, which is the only way it should be judged, a classic is a piece of writing which exhausts the possibilities of its form and can hardly be surpassed. No story or novel of mystery has done that yet. Is he trying to challenge? Close. (laughs) Is he trying to challenge Van Dyne for most pretentious murder mystery writer? He is absolutely. (laughs) 100%. He stepped up to the podium. He's had a swing. Because I, I read these articles in this yeah. order. I went, oh, here's the 10 rules. That's Click fine. through to the next one. This oh, is just here's getting... what, he, what? He said what? <laughs> he said what? He seems like a lovely man. So that's just the first point. How many points are there? There's a few. There's a There's few. few. Okay, okay. What's the next one? The next one is probably my favorite. Okay. On quality. Favorite? The average detective story is probably no worse than the average novel. Okay. But you never see the average novel published. Wow. Whoa. Raymond Chandler, what are you doing? This man does not like murder mystery. That's what I'm hearing. What is happening? He is not a fan of the genre that he writes in. What is happening here? Raymond Chandler, why would you say these things? I told you, Herds. I told you before the show that I was going to spring something on you. Do you understand now why I needed to have you react to this in real time? What is happening? (laughs) Why are we covering this man's novels? He doesn't deserve the time of day. He doesn't deserve the... Why why is he on this program? What is happening? Flex? (laughs) Why did you pick this novel? Because it's a good story. And this is the funniest article about detective fiction I've read since Van Dyne. Oh my goodness. You're right. We did need another Van Dyne. That's what I said so when good. I left those episodes was we need another controversial murder mystery writer. There's going to be like a hundred more of them just hiding out of the woodwork. We just got to find them. Oh goodness. <sighs> on bestsellers, promotional jobs based on sort of indirect snob appeal carefully (laughs) escorted by the trained seals of the critical fraternity the trained seals and lovingly tended and warded by certain much too powerful pressure groups whose business is selling books although they would like to think you they are fostering culture oh my goodness he just hates everybody doesn't he he's he's out to fight the critics out to fight the publishers it's just it just keeps going like I I kind of I kind of get Mike Grost's perspective now Mike Grost said on Raymond Chandler that uh, he's not a fan of Raymond Chandler as much because his work is just a bit grim and mm-hmm. you know I get the feeling that 
this essay might give us a hint as to the rest of his collection. I'm concerned. <laughs> well, maybe we should stay away from those, or maybe we should ex- explore them maybe in we should detail. Them. Maybe we should just explore all of them and see how depressed he gets. I'll have links on the podcast uh, <laughs> up oh, for goodness. these articles, including Raymond Chandler was an asshole, which we won't get into today, <laughs> but it does exist. It's like the inverse of Van Dyne, because Van Dyne was like very critical, and then he started writing, saying, I can do better. Yeah. And Raymond Chandler has said, oh, man, this is great writing these detective novels. Boy, they all suck. Like, what? <laughs> I wonder who fulfills that purpose today. Who is the person in modern crime fiction who who has grown to hate or grown to love from a position of hatred, <sighs> the genre? There's got to be one. I, just I feel wanna... like it's a universal constant. We have to find them. We because have to find them and have them I, on the show. Raymond Chandler started writing around when Van Dyne died. Really? Oh my goodness! It's There's like some, it's like some a ghost that's like passed thing. on from person to person, from critic to critic. Oh my goodness! <laughs> We've cracked the case, Flex. That was oh. you know, that was the real mystery. That was the real mystery. <laughs> so you know, that is Raymond Chandler Herds. That's Raymond Chandler. I guess we should talk about the book at some point. But oh my goodness, I, I just want to like think we could actually save the book for the next part of the show because <laughs> this deserves Raymond Chandler's. Opinions, yeah, deserve their to own stand. segment. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you. They deserve their time in the sun. That's I it. was very tempted to replace our guest today with this, <laughs> but I decided that this needed to go right out the gate. I'm we okay needed to it. get straight in there. No, I agree with you, Flex. You've made an impeccable decision. I can see why you picked this book. I can see why you picked this segment. I can see why we're in this room right now, sharing no crime in the mouth. We'll, we'll but not a, really. We'll <laughs> talk a bit more about Raymond Chandler. <laughs> We need to put him to bed. Next week on the show, uh, just just a, just a few little details, because there's a few oh little no. interesting trivia tidbits out there. That is what you need to know before we discuss the Excellent. next part of No Crime in the I'm Mountains. I'm ready. I'm ready. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. That was Raymond Chandler. <laughs> Raymond Chandler is an yeah. asshole. Wow. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour. And... We are covering No Crime in the Mountains this week. It's our second episode on it. And today, we are joined in studio by Tess Connery. Hello, it's so good to be back. Oh my goodness. Welcome, welcome. To SCR's former breakfast host, now writer for GOAT, long-term co-conspirator and true crime aficionado. <laughs> I told you that you wouldn't get rid of me. I, I didn't think we would. I remember, Tess, the first time we met was just down the corridor from this studio, and we started a conversation about crime and I endured a 30-minute rant <laughs> about the Teacher's Pet Podcast. It's probably like, and that was my introduction to you. It was probably like 25 minutes. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to go I'm going to go 35 if we're going to start making these arguments. This is going to end up being an hour by the end of it. My goodness. <laughs> you are probably correct, yes. But back when we started this show, we were discussing back and forth like, oh my goodness, we have to get Tess on and Aww. talk about true crime versus crime fiction. And then you left the station. I know, I did it just throw a spanner in the works (laughs) but we've dragged you back and Tess we are discussing perhaps the father of modern crime fiction we have Agatha Christie we have Emile Gaboria all of these old farts writing their cozy murder (laughs) mysteries but then Raymond Chandler and his cohort brought in the modern crime fiction novel the movie crime fiction novel Mm -hmm. the ones more engaged with the real world of crime the gritty the suspenseful the ones that didn't really care about your goddamn puzzles The, the bridging stories between the worlds of you know crime fiction and true crime which is why we've decided to drag you on, Tess, and debate why you should be reading crime fiction instead. Okay, all right. I'm <laughs> down to debate. We're going to actually fight you on the, on the station right now. It's we've got swords in the corner just in case things yeah. go awry. Okay, Just right. in case. I've got, I've got speed dial, security on speed dial. <laughs> We're ready to go. There you go. So, 
Tess, what is it that first got you into true crime as, as a consumer of the genre? I don't know if there was ever a particular point where a switch was flicked and all of a sudden I was really into it. But, you know, I watched a lot of Forensic Files as a kid and just it was one of those genres that really interested me. And I could never put a finger on why for the longest time. But the more I think about it, the more I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, the world is a horrific place. Mm. Oh. It's terrifying. It's <laughs> awful. and. I think it's a combination of morbid curiosity mm, mm. and also, I suppose, a feeling of, of arming yourself with knowledge. Yeah. You know, if you know what's out there, I don't know. That's, that's my theory. There sure. might be something deeply psychologically wrong with me that I haven't worked out yet, though. <laughs> Isn't that the case? You, you and millions of others, allegedly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Potentially. But, um, no, it was, it's just one of those things, like um, – you know, my dad used to have the crime channel and I would watch I would just watch that until someone came out and went, Oh my god, turn it off. You're scaring the house. <laughs> mm. So I've just always been really interested. Yeah. I think one of the the strange things for me with uh, with true crime, and this is I guess always gonna be the main punching point for crime fiction back at its its big brother to some extent. The the idea that, you know, it's always fascinating having this unknown out there that when you're reading through true crime, you you never know what's going to come. A lot of the time you're reading the cold cases mm-hmm. and there's always like, you, you know you're not going to get an answer there and there's always this mystery of how far in does this go? How deep does it go? Do we have any idea what's going on at all when crime fiction is like explicitly the opposite? And I find it interesting that like that's what appeals to me. I remember we had um, Catherine Lumbee from Macquarie University on to talk about pretty well that earlier on this year and how, you know, a lot of people kind of have that morbid curiosity you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I don't have that same morbid curiosity that some might, but I can I can appreciate a bit of true crime. I think that the the thing that tantalizes a lot of people is that like there's the unknown. There's going to be a cliffhanger at the end of the story and I'm not going to have answers. Especially compared to the crime fiction novels we're so used to with Knox and Van Dyne with all these rules and strictures and criminals that are always tied up at the end in a neat little bow. Yeah, I think one thing that was really interesting when you were first telling me about uh, Teacher's Pet earlier this year is that you were going on about how, yeah, obviously this and obviously this and obviously this. And I'm like, but if it was obviously that, surely it would have, you know, this wouldn't be a cold case. You know, obviously there's something else going on with, with all of these cold cases. And, you know, the narrative that's told there is always really interesting. But I was wondering how you felt about the idea that, like, you know, through presenting it, um, in Teacher's Pet and how they weave this narrative through it and other, you know, true crime podcasts. I remember we did a story last year on Breakfast about how the result of the Teacher's Pet podcast was that there probably wasn't going to be a fair trial for the people involved and the difficulties that, you know, that investigation causes because they're weaving that narrative, which is really just them storytelling over the top of real life and claiming it to be truth to some extent. Yeah, and I think that is one of the major pitfalls of the genre as all of a sudden it's exploded we are we are getting cases like that where you know it's 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 being dragged in front of the media and you know fair trials are you know necessarily being affected i think <laughs> mm. it is a, a pretty concerning thing trying to solve some of these things that's when you can get a couple of uh couple of major major yeah, plot yeah. holes. I, I think there's a big difference between trying to catalog that kind of subjective experience of the family and the victims yeah. compared to trying to assert, you know, this is the objective facts. This is how it happened. This is the truth. And I think we sometimes see these pitfalls as well when when kind of when creating media around this, creating movies or, or, or novels or whatever about, you know, true crime. Uh, it's why we always have that little tag, maybe inspired or may, you know, replicate real events, but it's definitely not, it's not that it's not real guys. Like, don't worry about it. Um, 
because you can fall into that pitfall of people saying, ah, you see this, uh, you know, PT Barnum was really a really great guy. We love him so much. Just as a wild example there (laughs) when he wasn't. And you get like I'm not doing a very good job at advocating for my side here. It's all right. That's right. We're here to rip you down. Debate was a strong debate was a strong word for really just having fun. I'm not doing a very good job debating here. But that's that's another thing as well is that you you with crime fiction you Mm. can be obsessed with whoever you want. If it's the murderer, I'm gonna judge you. But (laughs) you know, fair play. That's Mm. not the fun though. Uh, With true crime, you get really scary crap. Like with those mm. people who. Write love notes to Ted Bundy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so yeah. that's something that crime fiction does does take away, which I can appreciate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you could step back from reality and not have people objectifying and idolizing real murderers, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's a plus. It's not great. It's yeah. not great. Yeah. yeah, I think one of my favorite stories from this year was uh, the Benson murder case, which was by S.S. Van Dyne, and we covered it on the show. It was based off a real-life crime, and un- still to this day unsolved murder in a locked room in a New York apartment um, of, I believe, Joseph Elwell. And the the novel basically took that premise and weaved this whole narrative around it. And obviously, you know, the speculation in the, in the newspapers at the time was used to kind of help weave this narrative and all of the weird things people thought was happening. And, you know, this posh upperclassman coming in and saying, well, no, of course, the psychology of the matter. <laughs> um, and I think that there definitely is, you know, that whole element of truth being stranger than fiction and then taking those elements and weaving them into a nar- narrative is a really compelling way to tell stories. But we kind of went through this problematic period over the last couple of years where true crime started to do that and take itself too seriously. Very much so. And it, it's good, as you say, to see that we're coming out the other side of that to some extent, because obviously there's still a very human story to be told. Mm. I remember we were speaking a few episodes ago with uh, author A.B. Patterson, whose books, by the way, if you comment on a picture of them on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, you could win yourself some copies. Hey, hey. Netflix it hurts. Yeah, there we go. Smooth <laughs> plug. Um, but basically he was talking about, as a former police officer, how some of the things he'd encountered, if you'd told him and if you told us Mm. that they were real stories you wouldn't believe them like Mm. an underground mirrored basement full of torture implements what no like yeah it it happened it happened i was reading it on the man's bio on his website and i was like oh wow that's really interesting excerpt from his that that's not from the novel (laughs) oh my god this this is what i mean it's that morbid curiosity of like Oh my God, not only can this happen, but it mm. could happen down the street from me. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Ah, and then you scream forever. Yeah, it's especially one of these things when you look at like really old cases and how people have moved around the country, how all of these people will have stories of like how they lived near this one criminal yeah. or how this happened near them. You know, it's in every neighborhood. I have one in my street, which I won't say for the sake of not giving my home address out. But <laughs> terrifying. All right, point, fair enough. Point being, we all have those personal touchstones. It's saying to Flex crime. has a, a dark past. Excellent. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Look, I don't have a dog pass. Are you accusing me of the crime? Uh, This is a very Uh, suspicious claim. Not on air, I wouldn't. Something happened on my street. Cap's nose. (laughs) Chin stroke. (laughs) Where did this white cat and apple come from? Oh, no. So evil. (laughs) Hard agree. (laughs) So basically, today's conclusion is that Tess Connery doesn't actually love crime fiction as much as her bio has said for the past two years. Tess Connery does love crime fiction, but uh, no, true crime, dear Lord. Tess Connery does love true crime (laughs) podcasts and listening to it, but also A, is not a very good debater and B, recognises that there are a lot of problems with it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there you go. 
And that's the kind settled. of self-awareness that we need. That's the kind of <laughs> self-awareness we pride ourselves on in the true crime sphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tess, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Breakfast here at 2SER for the past two years. We Aww. will miss you dearly, even though it's now been however many weeks since you've left. Two. <laughs> Took me two weeks to get back onto this station. I know. Don't question it. Don't question it. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming. We'll miss you. See you around. We'll See be back with No Crime in the Mountains in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. And after bullying Raymond Chandler and having a lovely discussion with our guest, it's time to actually talk about this week's book. Oh, do we have we to? We are discussing No Crime in the Mountains by <laughs> Raymond Chandler, chapters five to nine. Herds, you are the blind man and you're on the clock. It's You've true. You've got to both describe and solve this book yeah. in 10 minutes. So, like, again, we have the same kind of structure we had last time where each chapter is its own little scene, which I appreciate. We chase some ladies around a cabin. We chat with a sheriff. We have a look at a corpse. We interrogate a poor old, probably widowed woman. And then we have a little car chase. And that's that's exactly what we've done for the last five chapters. I'm done. All right. how, how quick was that? Was that cool. 20 seconds? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was We're done. It was we can leave short. now. Yeah, I guess we just yeah. play music until the show's yeah, done. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, normally, in this part of the show, I try to solve everything. But I feel like uh, they've kind of solved it for us. I could be wrong. No confirming or denying, yeah. but, like, things seem pretty well laid out. If that, like, Ludus is read. the mastermind and, like... Ms. Lacey is in on it and her husband's dead. Like, I, I trust that. I trust that. If you've read up to chapter nine along with this, you will know that they pretty well explain the plot yeah. in chapter nine. And here you are telling me that you're just going to believe that I've just given you the answer? You've just given me the answer? What the book has because that's not its priority. That is, that is the feeling that I'm getting. I'm not saying there are no twists and turns in the story that we can uncover, but... I don't think this is a murder mystery in the traditional sense. As we said, Raymond Chandler, his priorities are different. I don't think that his priority is like figuring out who the killer is. I think that Ludus is like the mastermind, um, that Japanese gunman that we apparently have mm-hmm. alongside our German mob people. Well, this is some this is some World War nonsense. This is some like Japs and Germans coming over from the motherland and stirring crap in the US. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. But like I don't know that it really matters that much because we haven't been presented with like a closed room and like who could own the gun that killed the person. Like if I'm going to lock in anything particularly interesting, it's that assertion about like there's Germans and Japanese is probably some like old gold nonsense. Look, if there's Nazi gold in this, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, But like I feel like it's just not Raymond's priority. It's a Mm. short story after all. Um, we're here to enjoy this like crime drama and this like car chase through the mountains. Um, we're not here to like uncover the specifics. I don't know. That's just the vibe I'm getting. Yeah. Um, there's probably like the specifics of the the scheme of like where the counterfeit bills are going, but it seems like Mr. Webbers has just overstepped his boundaries with handing out money. The question that, that I have, have. The, yeah, question the question that I have Tell is that, you know, all of this is very straightforward and as you say the novel does kind of break down its own questions almost mm-hmm. immediately after it asking does. them it does but then how does this fulfill raymond chandler's rule the detective novel must baffle a reasonably intelligent reader is a reasonably intelligent person to raymond chandler not where we would consider it uh. is in fact the reason raymond chandler was so bitter and cold because he grew up you know around <laughs> people who could barely put numbers together lumpkins perhaps 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a terrible question, to be fair. I think that that lies in kind of the more background details of like, what is the specific scheme of the criminals? I feel like that's more like the thing that was going to baffle us. Like, I still am not entirely sure, like, why are they here? What are they using the money for? Is it to like fund Nazism? Is that what's going on? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't pin that down precisely. I mean, I, I think pinning it on the war is maybe a good idea. This did come out the same year as Pearl Harbor. Oh, well, there um, you go. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe that'll come back around. I mean, I, I barely remember what my theory was last week. Her, so <laughs> I've got to be entirely honest. That's right. Um, so I, I can't really say how true it was or not. It was probably completely made up. That's fine. <laughs> but I do like that this novel has kind of presented a different challenge where you know, I won't say why I chose to stop where I did, but I do think that the way that it presents these clues actually kind of early in the book, like sure. it feels like this explanation is coming, you know, with, with a third of the book left. So what do we do with the remaining third of the book? We chase them down. Yeah. We chase down the characters and we see if we can catch them and they're like secret, you know, tripartite packed base under the, not the hotel, the lodge that Luders runs, right? Because mm. I think that's where it's actually been run out of, now that I think about it. That makes more sense at this point in the story than the, the hotel itself. But anyway, I, I definitely think that the last third of the story is, is going to be focused on like, here's the like convoluted plan of the, the Nazi foreign spies or whatever. Mm. Um, and it's going to, we're going to focus on that. We're going to focus on like the background of the plot rather than the actual murder because I think in the grand scheme of things, the death of Lacey is really just stiffing a witness. Yeah. Like, that's pretty standard stuff for a crime novel about, you know, organized crime. Mm. Um, not not a personal crime so much, but organized crime, just like offing someone because they know too much. I mean, that's what happened to Weber. Um, that's what happened, I think, to Mr. Lacey. And that's probably what's, that may very well happen to Mrs. Lacey. Um, Who we'll knows? We'll see. probably have more death before the end of the novel. Maybe probably. just everyone ends up dead. I'd be okay with that, you know? But, uh, you know, no crime in the mountains at all. Hardly. <laughs> Hardly any crime at all, I would say, except for an organized crime ring, it sounds like. <laughs> Apart from that, yeah. Look, I just heard that Gertrude and uh, and Anna uh, got out. Uh, they were able to achtung their way out of there. Yeah. Good grief. I thought they were going to be more coy about the nationalities thing, but they have just gone full swing about that, which no. I love. A lot of novels, uh, a lot of stories that have been told now, uh, you know, fantasy or sci-fi, mm. they use as metaphor rather than as explicit, you know, the, the here are the Nazis and here's the Americans fighting the Nazis, right? Not, not to say that that wasn't done before as well, but sure. I think that in a, in a more globalized context, it makes more sense to kind of have these broader strokes. One of the things about the Caves of Steel is that the us versus them conflict was coming from a man who was, you know, associated with both sides. He was a sure. Russian living in America. For sure, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this all kind of comes back to, you know, a story must be credibly motivated. It's not just the motives of the criminals in the story. It's also that if it's a made-up thing that means nothing to you, yeah. it probably will feel that way. I was going to say, the, the final uh, listen there, must be honest with the reader, I mm. think is very prevalent in this novel. Um, especially if we are, if I am claiming that this solution, as a, whether it's being presented in chapter nine, more or less, is the truth. Yeah. I think that's pretty plausible given his 10th, you know, his 10th law there. Um, unless there's some kind of sudden twist that's about to happen, which is possible, but I feel like we've already reached the, uh, the climax. Yeah. We're kind of, barreling towards it right now we've already teamed up with the law we're heading on after the criminal um it's just a matter of you know lifting up the lid of the box and mm. seeing what's inside 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that that's why this story is so strong, paired with these 10 rules, because you can see each of them unfolding in a way that really embodies a perspective on the rules, but also demonstrates how flexible you can be. Sure. You know, as with the example I said there, that it's credibly motivated in that there's a credible motive for the criminal, but also that the position that Raymond Chandler's in, his, you know, distastes in the crime fiction genre kind of mm. coming through in the ways that it's very atypical. Sure. I really, I really think that it's a, it's a strong example of Chandler's work. Um, and you can, you can see Chandler in this text. So Herds Flex. You're just agreeing with the story. That's your final pick. I mean, more or less, like I've, I've added some extra bits and pieces about how there's like this world war two nonsense mm-hmm. going on. Um, I think that Mr. Lacey is dead. I don't know. I mean, is there anything more specific you want me to answer? Like, no, no. Like, I've been told to just solve the story, but I feel like I've already pinned down, like, I think that Japanese government killed Mr. Lacey because this whole mob boss business, um, it's like foreign affairs nonsense, whatever this is. Um, now the question is, the like, messed up when he put the counterfeit bills in the shoe. Mm. The question is, Hertz, before we end today's show, if this is the solution, was mm. it fair before you got here? Yeah, I think it's pretty fair so far. I just think that he's given the uh, the answer, so to speak, even if we haven't seen it in black and white writing. Um, he's giving you some accurate detective reasoning, like a little bit earlier than we would have expected in the story. Mm. But I think it's pretty fair. If uh, if it is in fact the truth, Hertz, we might have to find something else to discuss at the end of next week's show. Maybe we will. It's not my job. Maybe Look forward we to a will. flex. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Death of the Reader for this week. We will be discussing the final chapters from chapter 10 to the end of Raymond Chandler's No Crime in the Mountains. Herds, good luck. May the fates carry you. Thank you, Flex. I will be carried to the the mountain, the top of the mountain, where I will stand and hopefully (laughs) remain standing and not be pushed off at the end Mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. a Japanese gunman. Don't forget, check out our social pages at Flex and Herds, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have a competition running there where you can win yourself a modern noir novel by uh, guest Andrew B. Patterson. Don't forget to drop a comment on the picture of the books if you want a chance to win that. Thank you very much for listening. 